the city that we inhabit is many things, isn't it? I mean, the city we inhabit is a cultural hotspot. It is a London bustling metropolis, isn't it? Uh, London is what they call a world city. So all of those things. But I think we also have to be uh, honest with ourselves as well. The city we live in is also is a city of idols, isn't it? Uh, everywhere you look in London, there are monuments uh, to false gods. We have mosques. Temples, we have synagogues, we have atheists, and we have philosophers who are raised up to be the new deities, don't we? This is a city, a city of idols. Now, in such a place as this, in a city like this, what do we do? You know, as believers, as Christians, how do we how do we play this? Like, I'm pretty sure you you see what I mean, do you? Like. I'm guessing that each one of us is encountering, on a a day-to-day basis, we are encountering people who are enslaved by these things. They're enslaved by other religions. They're enslaved by sort of false uh, ideology or false false philosophies. What do we do? Like, how do we tell these people? How do we present the good news of the gospel in a sort of pluralistic or idolatrous cities this how do we how do we do it what do we do well this morning in acts chapter 17 we see is how the apostle paul acted in a very very similar circumstance to to, to the one that we find ourselves in today very 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 similar what the author luke is doing in this portion of scripture that we're going to look at luke is what he's doing is he's showing us the methods he has shown us the techniques that paul used to tell people the good news about Jesus Christ in a pagan and in a, an idolatrous city. So what I want to start with is just by saying this to you. You see this, Acts chapter 17. This is what we need. In Acts chapter 17, this, this is where we are as a congregation, as people, as Christians. This is where we are at, Acts chapter 17. Okay. So with that said, um, I would invite you as I regularly do, uh, to open your Bibles, have your Bibles open at Acts chapter 17. And let's consider the first of a few headings here, okay? Let's, cons- let's, let's consider the concern for idolatry that we see here, the concern for idolatry. Okay, lots of you were here last Sunday morning. If you were here last Sunday morning, you remember what we're dealing with at this point. We've seen uh, Paul had a sort of uh, quite a grand, great escape uh, from Berea. He's escaped Berea, and he's now landed in a new place. He's in a new city, and you'll see what, what it is. It's the city of Athens. Now, first thing you know, we've got to be thinking about and appreciating are the similarities between uh, where Paul is now in Athens and where we are this morning, okay? Because wh- how did I just start the service? I just started the sermon by saying, we are in a city of idols. (laughs) Look at verse 16. Look what we're told about this place that Paul's in now. (coughs) We're told exactly the same thing. It's a city of idols. Okay. Now, let me tell you. See, when you you begin to understand what Athens was like in the time of Paul, 
you begin to see that Luke is not really exaggerating. (laughs) That Athens was a city of idols. Like, everywhere you look, there were idols. You know, on every street. Like, there was temples in Athens all over the shop. You know, you're trying to do your shopping in in Athens. You can't, because everywhere you look, there's sort of statues to the god Hermes. You've got the Parthenon casting a shadow over the whole place. There's this guy, this writer called Petronius. Okay, now Petronius said about Athens, he said in the time of Paul, roughly, he said, in Athens there was more chance of you finding a god than there was of you finding another human being. Okay, so you get the picture, right? Athens is full of idols. Everywhere you look, there's nothing but idols. But here's the deal. Notice with me in the text how Paul copes with that. Like, think about Paul's physical response to seeing all of these temples and and all of these idols. Do you see what it is? Look at this. Notice, in the face of all of this idolatry, what does Paul do? He increases his evangelistic endeavor, doesn't he? Like, do you see what I mean? Like, have you been here for part of this series in the book of Acts? If you have, you know where Paul's first port of call is when he goes into a new city. What does he do? What does he do? He goes into the synagogue. Right? Every new city, every new place he goes into, he goes into the synagogue. Well, hang on, look at this. You see it? Look, faced with all of this pagan worship, faced with these, all of these idols, what else is it that Paul does in verse 17? Yeah, he goes into the synagogue. But he also immediately comes in Athens, and he is in the marketplace as well, and he's telling people about Jesus. Do you see it? Because of the idolatry... What Paul does is he spreads the net of the gospel far more widely. Now, we've got to be thinking about that. Like, why, man? Like, what was it about the scene in Athens? What was it about the idolatry that's making Paul change things up? What is it it about this place that's making him change his approach? Well, have a look at verse 16. We've seen what his physical response to all these idols were. He's, he's in the marketplace as well. Look at his man. Look at his emotional response to what he sees. He comes in Athens, man. He comes in, he sees all of these statues and these temples. And we are told that he was greatly, greatly distressed by what he sees. What do you think that means? Do you think Paul sees all these temples and all these idols out of the hankies, out of the Kleenex, and he's sort of crying, and he's crying away because of what he sees? Do you think that's what it is? It's not. The, the word there is the same word that is used of Almighty God's response and reaction to idolatry. Do you see what we're being told? Paul sees this stuff and it provokes him. Paul sees this idolatry and it angers him. He's angry about this. Not sort of flying into a rage sort of angry. But he's a man who sees this stuff and and he's greatly, greatly disturbed by it. Do you see why? Because Paul knows that these idols, they exist purely to steal honor away from his God. 
Paul is a man here who is jealous about the honor of God. He knows every single time one of these Athenians bows down to one of these statues or goes into the temple and worships. That is worship that is not going where it belongs. It is worship that is not going to his God, the one true and living God. And Paul is angry about that. Paul is jealous for the honor of his God. I think what we are seeing there is very, very, very important for our congregation and how we live in a city like this. Because I want to say this. Please hear it. There is a a disconnect between our desire for and our involvement in witnessing for Jesus in an idolatrous city, isn't there? There is. There's a disconnect between those two things. On one hand, I'm guessing there is no Christian in this room just now who does not want to see the gospel go out far and wide into London. Isn't that right? Like every single Christian here would just love to see the gospel, you know, preach right throughout London. We'd love to see that. We've got that on one hand. The other hand, when it comes to our own personal involvement in these things, isn't there such a, a reticence? Isn't there such a, a, a reluctance? Well, what I think we're seeing here in Acts chapter 17 is the primary motivation for evangelism in a pagan context. Because get this, you and I, we are only going to want to go out and tell people about Jesus in London if we have, if we have a thorough and extensive and zealous concern for the glory, for the honor of God. Do you see it? It's always going to be, evangelism is always going to be this major sort of burden. It's only going to be a responsibility until we are concerned with God's glory. So here's the rub. I would ask that you pray for us. I would ask that you pray that as a congregation we become so infatuated with the honor of God that when we are walking around London and we see its idols and we see its mosques, that it upsets us so much that we are forced out into the marketplace to tell people about our God, to tell people about Jesus Christ, to tell people about the one who is who is actually real the one who is risen and the only one who can redeem so we see a concern Paul's concern for idolatry secondly think about here the critique of idolatry okay the concern secondly the critique of idolatry so what's the scene where have we got to Paul's in the marketplace and he's preaching, he's telling people about Jesus Christ. I think in some ways, if we're going to understand, if we're going to understand what happens in Athens, God, bear with me here. We've got a picture of this. Like, picture that one of us this morning, could be anyone, let's say it's you, let's picture one of us at the end of the service this morning. Instead of having the fellowship lunch, we decide, right, I'm going to Hyde Park, I'm going to Speaker's Corner, and I'm going to stand there, I'm going to tell everyone about Jesus Christ, okay? 
And, so picture it, bear with me, we go, we're at Speaker's Corner, we're preaching, and what happens? Lo and behold, Richard Dawkins walks past, and he is, he's, he's out with his friends, and they're walking their dog at Hyde Park, and they're standing there, are standing, listening to us preaching. That sounds crazy, does it? Well, that's what happens here with Paul. Because look at this, like, Paul is in the marketplace. He's telling people about Jesus. As he's doing that, some thinkers and philosophers arrive on the scene. And they invite Paul to go to what was called the Areopagus. That's a great word, but really all the Areopagus was, was a sort of, you've got to imagine a big council. All these people get together, all they're doing is discussing religious and sort of philosophical affairs of the day in Athens. Can you imagine how intimidating that would be? Like Paul's in the midst of that. You've got Richard Dawkins there and Stephen Fry. And you've got, you know, all the sort of great minds of Athens. All the intelligentsia around him. Paul is in the midst of all of that. And he is asked, Paul, we want to know what you believe. Now remember what I said at the start. I said what Luke wants us to consider here are the methods the techniques that Paul uses to present the gospel in a pagan setting. So in the Areopagus, around all these incredible minds, how does Paul preach the gospel? What does he say? Well, there's a couple of things that I want you to think about. First is this. There in the Areopagus, Paul engages with contemporary thought. And I wonder, I wonder, if you see what I mean. Like what Paul does, he's surrounded by all these great minds in that council. He tells, he sort of deconstructs idolatry. You know, he begins by telling these people where where they are going wrong, but he does that. To do that, he begins with what these people already know. Like he's speaking to philosophers. So what does he do? What's his launching pad? What's his starting point? His starting point is their philosophy. I hope you're following this. If not, if you've got your Bible there, look at verse 23. Just have a look at verse 23. Like, I'm preaching to you, and my text this morning is Acts chapter 17. What's Paul's text in verse 23? Paul's text is an inscription on one of their idols. It says, to an unknown God. Do you see it? He is starting his presentation of the gospel with what those people know. Then what he does, and it's quite incredible, he actually interacts with what was called Epicurean philosophy. Like, you've got to imagine this group of people all around Paul, and they're all asking him questions. See, that group of people, a lot of them believed that God was very, very remote. That God was far off, that God was absolutely not concerned with, with mankind. See what Paul does? Paul interacts with that thought before showing them where they're wrong. He's speaking to what they know. Then, amazingly, what he does is he even quotes these guys' own poets right back at them. Do you see it? He's showing them. He's showing them that idolatry is wrong. He's beginning to show them the gospel. But what he is doing is speaking to what they know. Do you see how that helps us? Like, 
I'm, I'm not going to pretend for a second to know all of your circumstances and the, the situations of your life. But let me, let me guess a few things about you, okay? Let me guess that most of you have got some Muslim friends, okay? Or work colleagues or family members. Or you've got people who are atheists around you or people who, who have entirely different philosophical or, <coughs> or religious thinking. I guess that's true of you. I'd also guess, if you're anything like me, that with these people you are struggling to tell them about Jesus Christ, are you? Are you struggling with that to a Muslim person? Well, part of what we're seeing here is that it's entirely legitimate to begin conversations about faith where those people are at. Do you see it? It's legitimate from a biblical point of view to start these conversations about faith, to start these conversations about Jesus Christ by engaging with those people's point of view. See, that's what Paul's doing. He's engaging with contemporary thought. But I want to say something more important. He engages with contemporary thought, but he also, and we miss this every time we look at Acts chapter 17, he also engages with biblical thought. Like, I know sometimes when I'm reading the Bible in church, it's a bit chaotic, isn't it? Like, we've got to try and get the sound right when I'm reading the Bible in church, and maybe the kids are making a, a bit of noise, and, and sometimes we can, we can miss aspects of the text that we're studying when I'm reading it aloud, okay? I wonder, did you notice this? Did you notice that when Paul is speaking in the Areopagus, his presentation of the gospel is founded upon Genesis. Did you see that? It's founded in the Areopagus amongst all these minds and the sort of cultural intelligentsia and the elite. Paul's basing his gospel presentation in Genesis 1 to 3. Like, do you see that? Have, have a look at verse 24. What does he do? He speaks about one all-powerful God. That's, wait a minute, that's Genesis. That's Genesis 1-1. Then in verse 25, he speaks about the God as creator. It's Genesis, man. Then verse 26, he speaks about God having created one man. Genesis. Verse 27, he speaks about God creating that one man to be in relationship with him. It's Genesis. It's Genesis all over this. Do you see the point? Even in amongst that setting culturally switched on setting, the backbone for the gospel presentation, the backbone is the word of God. And I think because of that, I want to issue a warning to you. I think we have to be very, very careful about how we present the gospel in our idolatrous city. Because let me be straight with you. See the verses we're looking at today? They are the sort of favoured stomping ground of uh, cool Christians. I know that sounds like an oxymoron, I suppose, in some ways. But you know who I mean. Like, you know, sort of cool Christians. Like the church planting cool guys. You know, the, the ones with little jazz beard. And uh, maybe sort of uh, converse all-stars. And they've definitely got a very small Apple Mac laptop. You know, the cool Christians. They love Acts chapter 17. 
Because they would say, I think Acts chapter 17, it shows us that if we are going to, if we are going to hit the culture of the city, you know, if we're going to have a lasting impact on the city, what we've got to do is we've got to be au fait and we've got to be conversant with all the modern thinking and the philosophies of the day, that that's the important thing. Now, we have seen that there is an element of truth in that, but hear this, what we must not lose sight of is that, yes, Paul used the philosophy of the day, but he did it only to open the door to the Word of God. Do you see that? That we must not lose sight of the, the, the fact that, that our concern in evangelism is not just to immerse ourselves in sort of philosophical debate. Our job is to persuade. Our job is to put forward to our city a thoroughly biblical presentation of the gospel according to Jesus Christ. It has to be a biblical presentation. So we see a concern. We also see the critique. Thirdly, we see the challenge to idolatry. The challenge to idolatry. So are you with me so far? So we're thinking about Paul's technique, his methods. We've seen him engage with these people in this council, the Areopagus. We've seen him hit them with scripture though. And, And what I want to do is just just to consider how Paul ends the sermon. He's still speaking to these people in the Areopagus because what he does is tell these people how God can be known. Remember we've said that they think he's God's far off. He's not concerned about relationship. Paul is saying this is how God can be known. So what does he say? A few years ago, I lived um, in a group of flats in the city of Glasgow. Um, and so it's a, a, a group of friends, really. There's about 12 of us from these flats that used to hang out together most evenings. And uh, what you've got to imagine, this group of 12 people, is a really mixed group of people um, from different religious backgrounds, really, is what I'm trying to say. Also, some atheists in that group of people. Also, people who were studying philosophy. And what we used to do, get together at night, it sounds a bit boring really, but we used to discuss religious stuff, or we used to discuss philosophical things. You know, get together, cup of tea. It does sound boring, doesn't it? It wasn't as boring as I'm making it sound. Now, here's the, here's the deal though. I was the only Christian but I had a plan, right? My plan was to introduce the gospel into this setting, but I was going to do it really slowly. I was going to be very clever about it, and I was just going to delay. I was going to bring the gospel in right at just exactly the correct point. So we would talk about philosophy. I would go and read about philosophy, but I wasn't going to bring the gospel in quite yet. I was just going to wait. Then we would talk about, you know, the sort of religion, science, type stuff, and I would go I'd go away and read about that. But I wasn't going to bring the gospel in there. The weeks ticked by, the months ticked by, the lease ran out of the flat. Everyone moves out of the flat, and do you know what I realized? Do you know what I realized today? 
Think about that opportunity. And I never have shared the gospel with that group of people. It's never happened. So hear this. In the Areopagus, Paul was not about to make that same mistake. Because what he does here in front of all these people is not just tell them that Almighty God can be known through repentance. That's what he says. He says, think about that. That God can be known, we can be reconciled to God through repenting of our sins in Jesus Christ. He does not just tell them that. What he does is he underscores what he says about repentance by talking about, do you see it? He talks about the coming judgment of God. Now that's a thought, isn't it? And do you see what's happening here? Do you remember what Luke has just told us about the Athenians? I was laughing as I was reading it to you. He says about the Athenians that they just sat around all the time, chilling out. That these Athenian people, they just, they sat drinking tea and coffee and they were sort of chatting about the philosophical and religious ideas of the day. They're all very relaxed about this stuff. Do you see what, what Luke's doing? He's contrasting that with Paul and the Areopagus. You see, Paul wasn't doing that. Paul wasn't just sort of tossing a little theological idea to the mix. Paul was calling for these people to repent of their sin. And he's saying to them, look, the judgment's coming, people. He says, look at it. He says a day is set for that judgment. The time is taken down to it. He says, repent. Because what else does he say? The whole world is going to be judged by God. He's not just, he's not just suggesting. He's calling for these people. He's saying, repent. Repent. Friends, do you see how helpful that is for us? Do you see how helpful it is for you in your workplace, in university, in the home? Do you see it? Because I'll tell you this, the temptation in our city, man alive, it is to prevaricate. Isn't it? Like our temptation, my temptation is to skirt around the gospel, never really to get, never to get to it. So you hear this. What we see in Acts chapter 17, one word. What we see in Acts chapter 17 is that especially in a culture of pluralism and idolatry, especially in this sort of culture, we don't just speak about Jesus. We speak about Jesus quickly. Do you see that? That we have to show the people of this city the utter urgency of the gospel. That repentance does lead to salvation now. But at that door, it will not always be open. Do you see it? And then I want to end with the cessation of idolatry. We've seen the concern, the critique, the challenge. Just a word on the cessation or the ceasing or the end of idolatry. Were you at church last Sunday morning? Uh, if you were, you will have heard something unusual. Uh, I preached a sermon on preaching last Sunday morning. I think I've done that before. A sermon on sermons, which is a bit bizarre, I know, but that's what we did last Sunday morning. Afterwards, I was speaking to Sina about what is called expository preaching. 
So expository preaching, really a simple way of thinking about it, is where the main point of a text of the Bible is supposed to be the main point of the sermon. That's the sort of throwaway definition of expository preaching. The main point of a chapter is supposed to be the main point of the sermon. Now, I have said in Acts chapter 17 that the main point of the sermon is what? Main point of the text, rather, is what? It is the methods and the techniques that Paul is using to proclaim the gospel in a pagan context. That's true. It is true. What I think Luke would also want us to see the results of the preaching. Not just the technique, no. But the results. And for this, I'm going to ask for your input and your involvement. So you're going to have to be awake. See, what we've got are three responses to Paul's sermon in the Areopagus. And so here's what I want you to do. I want you to ask yourself just now, which one of these three responses is your response this morning to the gospel of God? Okay? What is you, which one of these is your response? Can I ask you, this morning, not ten years from now, not how you used to do it this morning, are you mocking the gospel of Jesus Christ? Are you mocking it? That's what we see here, isn't it? Look at verse 32. Paul finishes preaching, gets to the end of the sermon, he's talked to them about judgment, he's called for them to repent. What happens? Some of the people, they sneer at him. They mock the gospel. Now, isn't it interesting that they do not mock him when he talks about creation? They don't mock him when he stands there and he talks about judgment. When do they mock him? It is when he talks about the risen Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So I ask you this morning, is that where you are? Are you mocking the idea of a risen Christ? Are you joining your voices with the rest of London? Who finds this ludicrous, this idea of a risen Savior? If so, I would like to say this to you, friends. You see what Paul says in the Areopagus that day? It is true. 2,000 years ago, in Jerusalem, the Lord God of heaven and earth, he defeated death. And he did raise his son to life. We have a risen Savior. It is true. Are you mocking? Second of all, maybe you're not mocking. Maybe simply you are intrigued by the gospel. See that again in verse 32. It's the same thing. So Paul finishes. Some are sneering. Some are mocking him. Verse 32. Some people say, no, wait a minute. This is interesting. We want to hear you again on this, Paul. I ask you, is that where you are? Are you this morning in this church because you were quite interested in Christianity? You are maybe quite interested in in this idea that repentance is repentance unto life, eternal life. Are you interested in that? Do you want to know more? If so, friend, here's, here's how it goes. I would ask you, not to delay. Oh, how I would want you not to wait. You want to know more about salvation? Then right now, 
you ask God to show you more about salvation. You ask the Lord your God right now to show you the Lord Jesus Christ. Are you mocking this? Are you intrigued? But we end with the third one we see. Are you believing in the Lord Jesus Christ? Because I can't quite get my head around it. But that's also what we see in Acts chapter 17. Can you believe it? The cultural elite, those high-flying men. And what we read is that Paul preached to them Jesus. He told them about repentance and some believed it. Some repented of their sin, Jesus Christ, and they believed. My friend, if you are a Christian this morning, does that not kind of change you? Does that not fill you with hope? No. That even in Athens, man, like even in that sort of cultural hotbed, all these, all these devilish idolatries and philosophies that God saved people, doesn't it fill you with hope? Because you see what it means, don't you? It means that today, here and in London, in amongst all of these mosques, and in amongst all of these idols, that should we, the people of God, speak about our Savior, then, through repentance, what will God do? He will bring people. He will bring people to a saving knowledge of himself. That is staggering, isn't it? What love we're seeing in Acts chapter 17. In fact, I tell you what we're seeing in Acts chapter 17. In amongst all of those temples and in, <coughs> in amongst all of those idols, what we are seeing, we are seeing grace. Praise God for that. Let's pray.